Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Zoltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week, we're going to bring you the latest stories driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So folks did a great job last week with your micro-assignment. So not only do we have new Stitcher reviews and ratings, which are very important to getting being discoverable, we also have new iTunes reviews, which is also very helpful. Uh, One review we particularly like is from... Beaver Street, I guess. (laughs) That's how it's spelled. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced or if it's pronounced a specific way. They say they like the show, but they don't like the sound of all the paper shuffling, (laughs) which we hear you. (laughs) I defiantly (laughs) shuffle my papers. No, we we hear you. (laughs) We have – that's a very – actually, we like constructive feedback since we are researchers. But we – just so folks know, we have like 25 pages of notes for each of us when we do the show because there's so many – Numbers and the shows are pretty long. I mean, maybe if we did like, okay, we're just doing two topics, then we could kind of memorize it all. But since we have polls from everywhere and so many things we want to cover, we have to have it all in front of us. And then it does get a little noisy. So we'll try to do better. We'll try to do better. And then we also like Basket Boys Review that says we're a great addition to the Panoply Politics Network, (laughs) which we're not. But that's a great thought. Maybe (laughs) you supplement Panoply with us, which is also a good thought. Maybe an idea for a micro assignment down the road. But micro assignment for today, it'll take 60 seconds and it's free. NPR has a new podcast platform called Earbud FM. And so that's how NPR recommends new shows, not just their own types of properties and sort of the radio, you know, the radio alumni network that's in podcasting now. But we think we should be on their list, uh, especially since Kristen and I got the idea to do the show after we appeared together on All Things Considered during their State of the Union coverage. So here's how you can help. You can go to Earbud just how it sounds, .fm. And on the upper right-hand corner, there's a box to submit a show that you like. They say they don't really want – we do it, but they say they don't want people (laughs) submitting their own show. So it would be better, we think, if folks would do it. It would be great if there were multiple folks doing it. So fill out the form. It will take just a minute. We'll put the link in our show notes and in our Twitter feed and on our Facebook page, and that's earbud.fm. 
So this week's top lines, we'll start off with uh, the little bit of polling that we have that can shed light on public opinion and how it's shifting after the tragic events in Paris from last week. Um, We'll take a look at what people think about terrorism, about Syrian refugees here in the U.S., um, and see how this may affect the 2016 race. We'll dig in um, to both the Democratic and Republican sides per usual. No debates uh, coming up for quite a while, but we'll look at how the Democratic debates uh, from last week may have shifted things. Um, We have an interview coming up with Chuck Todd from NBC, a really exciting guest for us. So stay tuned for our interview with him. Um, We'll also talk a little bit about Pew's new methodology for surveying Latino voters. Um, A few other polls that we'll cover are about women in tech, um, Airbnb, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about how millennials have said that Cuba is a travel destination for them. So after the tragedy in Paris last Friday, um, not surprisingly, there's been a lot of polling that's come out since then uh, showing a few things. One, there's been a lot of polling showing a sudden boost, a bump in the percentage of folks who say that terrorism is their top concern. Reuters does regular tracking. They, You can really see the very clear rise. I think we'll expect to see that now for a while. Um, also, uh, folks saying that they think Republicans have a gain and, and who has a better plan. Reuters, again, shows that increase uh, over Democrats, although there's also an increase in the percent that say, I don't know, which party has a better plan, which perhaps does suggest that people are paying a little bit closer attention because they're not sure. They're looking for a plan, not sure what the plan is, which I guess makes sense as we'll talk about various candidates saying a variety of different things. Reuters also says in their polling that, that voters think we should be doing more. Um, in uh, in response to the shooting uh, in France, um, so uh, what do you think, Kristen? I mean, there's been a lot of stu- a lot of talk about from the different candidates about their response to the refugee crisis in the wake of Paris, and there's been a lot of backlash on the left. There's been a lot of chatter everywhere. What's your take? Uh, it, so the refugee crisis seems to be the piece that's getting the most sort of partisan discussion these days. You know, the, neither side really appears to have a clear, this is what I would do to take out ISIS plan, except perhaps Donald Trump, whose plan is fabulous and classy, um, which we'll get to some polling later on that suggests Donald Trump has actually convinced quite a few voters that he'd be great to take on ISIS. Um, but there there was some polling kind of going back through history. You know, this is not the first time that um, folks fleeing a conflict zone um, have sought asylum in the United States. Um, and over the last century, you know, there's public opinion data showing what Americans thought at the time about allowing in refugees from other countries. Now, um, I think an argument you would hear from the right is that this time is different because the nature of the conflict and the nature of the enemy is different um, than it was, say, in 1939. Um, but but there is you know kind of interesting polling um, that's been pulled together by the uh, American Institute of Public Opinion. Well, it's all been pushed down this Twitter account, which I had not heard of. Had you? No. Did you know- about this person at Hist Opinion, so like historical opinion. He is run by – I don't have the name of the person who runs it, but he has been pushing this stuff out for a while, just public you know, data from the archives. And We love one, that stuff. We love that stuff. And one of the things was in a Washington Post story and the first time I so – I saw the post story then. I looked at his Twitter feed. He had like 7,000 followers. At the end of the day, he had – or this morning, like 14,000. Like he's gone completely – he's completely blown up by looking at a lot of charts on this topic, old data from the 30s among college students, among folks overall. Should we bring in 10,000 refugee children from Germany, most of them Jewish, to be taken care of in American homes? 61% said no. This was in 1939. Um, 
Jews saying they're more open to a bill uh, to open the doors of the United States to a larger number of European refugees than are now admitted. This is, again, 1939. There are a couple different data points on this. Um, and it's it's seen as, you know, some folks are saying that's a parallel. Other folks are saying, well, it's not quite a parallel. I think the concern or where the where this is becoming contentious is a few things. One, are we using public opinion to decide something that can, you know, uh, emotional public opinion to to make a form a difficult foreign policy decision, which is all you know frequently a challenge, particularly with things when it comes to foreign policy, where you know folks don't necessarily have a lot of the detail in their walking around in their day to day life. Right. Um, you know, I think the other challenge, which I saw you had a tweet, Kristen, that bounced around, is you know. A does this conversation now sort of fall into these traditional grooves, yeah. left versus right, where you have folks on the left? And I can completely appreciate that folks on the right don't want to be called racist or hateful every time there's a conversation that involves a diverse audience. Um, nonetheless, you also see some candidates saying, well, we should yeah. have a religious test of who we let in, which just doesn't really you know, strike most folks as being very tolerant. You have folks uh, in the Christian community pushing back against uh, Republican candidates for some of the language that they've used. John Kasich said we should have a propaganda operation where we're promoting Christian, Judeo-Christian values around the world. I mean, you know, you have, you have some language from some of these folks that I think um, – perks the ears of folks on the left as sounding, you know, not forward thinking, but maybe. Well, and, and what I wonder is as you more know, vintage, more vintage positions. I, I'm assuming there will be a lot more polling done on this, obviously, in, in coming weeks. Um, and I mean, I think the real thing that that folks need to grapple with is, you know, we can sit here and say, gosh, you know, we we should we absolutely need to open our hearts to these refugees. And, you know, why would you not do that? And, um, it, you know, it's horrible not to do so. But, but from a polling perspective, I mean, bear in mind that a lot of the same factors that are fueling like the rise of a Donald Trump make the politics of this issue very complicated. And so one can imagine different variations of a question. I mean, this is sort of the, the challenge and fun of public opinion or policy polling is, you know, you can ask a question, should we let the refugees in or not? Should we let the refugees in if there is a complex screening process? Should we let in children? Should we let in children? Should we? And then, you know, asking the question, should we do, you know, what if the religious test winds up polling very well? I mean, this is the the intersection of this issue in 2016, I think, is, is far is going to be far more partisan than what you might see around something like, well, should we be doing airstrikes or what's going on? You know, how should we be handling Putin and how should we be handling Assad? Because those issues, they're not clear bright lines party-wise, whereas when it comes to things like, um, you know, how do we handle terrorism domestically, there have always been clearer partisan lines on those issues. Yeah, and I think, yes, and I I think one of the challenges, you know, as we, as the campaign wears on, and I think, you know, particularly if you continue to have this contested primary and you see some candidates really trying to stand out, like Ted Cruz, for example, who's had a bump in the polls recently, is this an issue? And he's used some of the more out there language when talking about refugees. Does that help or hurt him in the primary? If it ends up helping him, I think you're going to see this conversation continue in a way that frankly I don't think is helpful to the Republican Party brand overall, even if it does test well with some audiences in a fractured, well, but crowded primary. What I'm, but what I'm arguing is that, you know, on a question of should we allow in Syrian refugees 
given that right now the process, you know, you even had like Chuck Schumer yesterday coming out right. and saying, well, maybe we need to pause this. Maybe we need to take a look at what the program is. Like, How what, do you do vetting and screening well, if people don't have any paperwork? I mean, I think those are all totally legitimate yeah. kinds of conversations. Well, and and so what I suspect, though, is that if you did a poll along those lines, you're not just going to find that it's the Trump voters saying, no, don't let in the refugees. That, that That's why that was the sort of the, the motivation behind my tweet yesterday was I suspect that the politics of this, that the Democrats feel like this is probably a great example to prove that those Republicans are really just as mean as everybody thinks they are. And I think they'll, that I suspect that we will see polling in the coming weeks that show it's not just like base Republicans who are apprehensive about what do we do around this refugee crisis, that the politics may not be as favorable I mean, well, and it, it depends. It depends on if you're talking about someone with a really extreme view like a Mike Huckabee. Right. I think that's probably very far outside the mainstream. But in general, the idea that, hey, maybe we need to take a pause or maybe I don't want to let refugees into my state. I, I actually am not convinced that the politics of this are – make the Republicans outside the mainstream. Yeah. But we, we don't have – I mean, we don't have good data quite yet, but – just given given the way that the politics of of things like immigration have played out, et cetera, I'm I'm merging that with national security concerns. I think broadens the audience of people who take a perhaps might take a more conservative position. Yeah, no, I hear you, and and I I don't know what I, I don't know where the conversation goes if it ends up showing that you know there's bipartisan opposition to taking in refugee children. I'm not you know I, I, then what happens right? Yeah. If we're just looking at the candidates in terms of which candidates are com- are are very clear about their position, it is the more right wing candidates, mm-hmm. and you know they they end up looking like you know the person with the the sign at a Tea Party rally, and are they representative Republicans overall, or are they getting disproportionate news coverage? But you're still talking about not a person with a sign, but you know, major candidates, so right. top-tier candidates. So we'll see how that all uh, unfolds. There's also a PRRI survey that uh, was in the Washington Post, a different topic, but still, I think represents where you may end up seeing a lot of the political dialogue going, this election cycle, which party seems inclusive, which party wants to, um, you know, which party feels that change is coming too quickly uh, to the country. And these are similar sort of culture war battles and all, all kinds of culture war and inclusivity can be kind of mapped into this line. And that's where I'm worried about the refugee crisis going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see, so there was a question today, discrimination against whites has become a big problem as discrimination against blacks and other minorities. So discrimination against whites is as big of a problem as all kinds of other discrimination. Um, A majority of Americans, not an overwhelming majority, but a majority of Americans say, no, that's not true. But two-thirds of Republicans say that is true, even more among among Tea Party folks. And you have voters overall, majority, in the same study, this isn't broken out by party, saying that they feel that the country has changed mostly for the worse, um, the culture, uh, compared to 1950. So I that you know that's sort of a where are we going where's the future kind of conversation and maybe the refugee crisis is just a, another way to have that conversation maybe it's not but that i i think then again going back to the 1939 polling data it's just another maybe another um venue for that kind of dialogue although i will say that that when the in the prri question of has american culture changed for the better or the worse since the 1950s the number that we're seeing now is consistent with where things were in march of 2013 you had a majority of americans back then say this as well so it's not necessarily that this is something that's been caused by 
say, you know, Trump and immigration, Trump and immigration or for, you know, this is yeah. something that's been around for a while. And, and, you know, we've been looking at data for years now about right track, wrong track and stuff that shows Americans just frustrated and ticked off with everything. So in a way, it doesn't surprise me. Also, the 1950s, how old does a voter have to be to actually remember the 1950s? I mean, for an awful lot of voters, that 70, question is 80. hard to answer because you're basically comparing your current life with like an imagination, an imaginary. You're either thinking about it in terms of like Greece, <laughs> not the country. <laughs> Greece is the word. John Travolta. Yes. Um, or you're thinking of it in terms of this is pre-civil rights. Movie. You know, so you can have right. very good or very bad impressions. But, you know, it's all very – not a ton of voters – had clear memories of the 1950s to which to compare this. And yes. even if you do, sometimes people, you, you know, nostalgia for the past. Right, it's right. It's, right. Um, so let's talk, move on to the debate. So this is the, well, the first time in a while we haven't done a presidential race first because um, we had, I get quote unquote, big news. Um, and then, but there was a, a debate on Saturday at nine o'clock um, this past Saturday. Gosh, I'm sure every American <laughs> was just tuned in, ready it, to watch. I read that it had, that wasn't paper shuffling. That nope, was, that was mic. me knocking over my mic. <laughs> that, um, that was – it actually had higher ratings, I read, than all of the Republican debates in the 2012 election. So like every – it's the lowest this time around but higher than last time around. That's, Interesting. That, so now there's a lot more interest. So I don't know – Anyway, that's exciting. That's yeah. interesting. People are getting Saturday at nine o'clock. That's that actually is impressive if a lot of people it is, watch. It is impressive. Um, but so there was a PPP poll that um, came out pretty quickly that of they pre-recruited debate watchers. They said, "Are you going to watch the debate?" They called before the debate or a couple days before the debate and recruited some folks and then called them back and said, "What did you think?" And um, overwhelmingly, they thought that Clinton won. Uh, about two-thirds said that Clinton won. Um, you have more say – and this is different from other post-debate polling we saw after the first Democratic debate where people thought Clinton won. But they, but everybody felt more favorable about Sanders and some of the other candidates as well. It wasn't just – uh, it wasn't just that um, that advantages went to Clinton, but here in the PPP poll, there was a clear advantage for Clinton. Now, there are a couple things, and this is true with some of the other polling too. It's important when we look at post-debate polling is where do people begin? Where did they vote? Well, how are they voting before they watch the debate? And we don't know that from this poll that didn't, you know, it's not released. Um, I haven't seen it. It's typically not done because, you know, most people are not pre-recruited. They're asked after the fact. So we don't know how, if they moved and maybe only Clinton watcher voters tuned in. We don't know the answer to that from this poll or any of the other polls. The other thing, too, that came out um, was that, that, well, it was released and it was in the release that this poll was sponsored by a super uh, Clinton super PAC. So take that with a grain of salt. Doesn't mean the poll is wrong. Certainly other polls show that Clinton had some advantages, but that PPP poll seemed to show a little bit more advantage for Clinton than some of the other polls that we, uh, that we that yeah, were released. The, because the GFK, um, CBS did a poll using GFK, um, so which I believe that means it's an online survey. Right. Um, and they asked the same question. But done with a, like a pre-recruited, you know, where they give people internet access. So yeah. it's not just finding people while they're surfing. Right, right, right. Um, from from a panel. Uh, and there they said, you know, who do you think did the best job? And there you had a majority in that poll saying Hillary Clinton. But then they, they also asked that question after the debate, did your opinion of, you know, each of the candidates get better, worse, or was unchanged? And 
the PPP poll, you know, again, showed 63 percent had a more positive view of Clinton after the fact, which was far better than O'Malley or Sanders. Actually, she in the GFK poll is the one that benefits the least. Right. But the fewest people say that their opinion of her changed for the better. But not by a lot. But they're basically all tied, more or less. That they're basically all tied in this poll. But yeah. it's a, but going from 63 percent in the PPP yeah. poll to 38 percent in this poll, that is a pretty big drop off. Yeah. Um, and, you know, instead in the PPP poll, only 22 percent of people said, eh, the debate didn't really make a difference. Yeah. But a majority said the debate didn't make a difference in the GFK poll. So that's really the only place where you see a big difference between the, those two polls is around did this help Hillary Clinton or not? Right. And then the Wall Street Journal did a Google Consumer Survey poll after the debate, and they found that Sanders was declared the winner there uh, by 44 percent of Democratic primary voters who said they watched the debate, 32 percent for Clinton, 2 percent for O'Malley. So that shows a different result there. So you have three polls with three, you know, different results. I mean, pretty different results. And, you know, given that it was lower ratings and given that uh, you had the tragedy in France dominating a lot of the news. You know, I, I think in you know, I, I don't know if in the end this the the debate changes the game for really anybody other than maybe O'Malley. Well, and it may be that the issue mix changes the game. So in that CBS GFK poll, the respondents were asked which candidate would do a better job at handling each foreign policy, terrorism, handling ISIS, gun policy, economy and jobs, income inequality. Um, and Hillary Clinton blows the competition out of the water on the Democratic side when it comes to foreign policy, terrorism and ISIS, where she does less well compared to her opponents is gun policy, but then economy and jobs and income inequality. She trails Bernie Sanders on those issues. So certainly, you know, it's, it seems always kind of crass to talk about who politi- who benefits politically from from stories like this. But having the focus on national security issues seems to put Hillary Clinton's strengths in a Democratic primary more at the forefront of the news. Right. Right. Well, that's certainly the conventional wisdom. Meanwhile, there was a Colorado Quinnipiac poll this morning. This is just Colorado. But in the general, Sanders is running better than Clinton against the various Republican folks Although in the poll that it, came out this morning. Although it, it needs to be said, I, I have not had a chance to dig deeply into the sample here. But I saw Harry Enton from 538 tweeting that he had some kind of a beef with the, the Quinnipiac, Colorado sample. So I, I will not put on my like wow. Republican celebration hat too quickly. <laughs> I won't blow up the balloons. You know, th- this this poll shows in Colorado. Well, no one should do that based on a poll at, in whatever, whatever month it is now correct, in November. Correct. <laughs> um, but in, in this Quinnipiac poll in Colorado, the results are pretty astonishing, which is why people are kind of digging in closer to see if this is if this is for real. Um, it shows, for instance, Marco Rubio defeating Hillary Clinton 52 to 36 in Colorado, which has been a blue state as of late. Um, ben Carson leading Clinton 52-38. Ted Cruz leading Clinton 51-38. Donald Trump leading Hillary Clinton 48-37. And I think a lot of people are looking at that result and going, what? Is that possible? I mean, and look, anything's possible. Um, and you know what? It's good to have polls come out that are outliers. So we we know that herding is not going on here. We know that right. people aren't like suppressing results that they think are outside the norm. So kudos for Quinnipiac on that front for putting it out. Um, but this poll certainly runs contrary to some other things that we see and might expect about Colorado. Now we're going to call Chuck Todd, who you may know as the host of Meet the Press and Meet the Press Daily, and before that from the Daily Rundown. And we're very excited to have him. 
Hi. Hey, how are you? It's Margie and Kristen. Hi, Chuck. Hi. How you doing? We're good. So thank you so much, Chuck, for agreeing to do this. We really appreciate it. I guess it's this file, file this under be careful what you wish for an on-air chit-chat when you said have, have me on the show. <laughs> sure. No, I don't, I don't mind ranting about um, how the industry is getting destroyed. <laughs> oh, is that where you want this to go? We were going to say we, were, we thought you were going to be one of our biggest boosters. <laughs> uh, I'm a big booster of good polling. All right. Well, good. We're all on the same page then. <laughs> so no, I'm just I'm 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 anti all this craziness that is destroying the reputation of good polls. Now let's get started there. I mean, how do you look at as a journalist? How do you how are you able to tell what's good polling and what's bad polling? Well, it's getting harder and harder. I mean, I think that like you know, take you know, sometimes good pollsters have bad samples, uh, and sometimes one-time half-decent polling outfits are doing something wrong that's continually getting them, I, I, I think, misleading numbers. Um, I, there's a there's a, one current polling outfit connected with a university that has just, at some point, they need to look in the mirror and say, there's no way this is a double-digit race in a general election. Do we have a sample problem? You know, and they've had this in a bunch of swing states lately. And it and, you know, that's you know, that's the thing there. Sometimes it's not just one thing, but it's like I think that there's some some of this public and really it's the public polling that is, I think, made a travesty of the polling industry. And it's the robo polling hasn't helped the speed with which um, the corners that get cut, not enough cell phones or too many robos or too reliant on online. And so it, it's sort of this, this saturation issue. And I'll be honest, I haven't, in some ways, sometimes I feel like it, it, it's hard to keep up with, you know, look at morning consult, you know, this is a brand new outfit that's showing right. up, you know? So, and even if you know people over there and you know that they're trying to look at what we're doing with survey monkey, you know, and I, and, and I am a healthy skeptic internally. And at the same time, do want us to be experimenting and we worked a year internally before we allowed it on air. So it's, um, I just feel like there's too many, we know a lot of people are experimenting with new methods of polling, but too many of the experiments are being taken at face value. And I think that's probably the problem. I mean, one, you know, one other issue is really how we're defining polling and what we're using it for. I mean, you probably saw or heard about the Jill Lepore story in The New Yorker, which a lot of folks were talking about. And she in that story says, well, let's just look at polling in terms of publicly released horse race polling, which, as as we all know, and as our listeners know, that's oh. just a very small fraction. The of- horse race is the worst way to, de- to decide whether a poll is good or not. Yep. I mean, and, and unfortunately, horse race. So, for instance, I fought and I lost this. You know, I, I didn't want us to do any horse race with our online polling, um, not because I didn't know if it was going to be good or bad, but I just didn't want to do that because I didn't want the online polling to get judged for better or for worse just by the horse race. Mm-hmm. But, you know, our partner really wanted to do the horse race because they want to prove that they know what they're doing and they know they're getting judged by the horse race. This is, you know, in this case, Survey Monkey. So, I mean, I get it from their point of view, but... Um, the problem is you're right. We're, we're, we're too many people can easily dismiss the entire polling industry by just looking at horse race, um, in a, in a, in a bad way. 
So let's let's take an example of the Kentucky race that we just saw where all of the polls showed Conway up by a little bit or a race that was pretty close. And clearly that's that's not how the Kentucky was there a race. single was there a single live caller cell phone heavy poll conducted in Kentucky that anybody got their hands on? I thought that there was one that they where they actually did call off of lists, but it wasn't clear. But they I don't think they I think that was still and IVR, it, it, wasn't it? Well, yeah, well, I don't think there was. So my my I look at Kentucky and say, see, you get what you pay for. I mean, the this, other, right. And okay, yeah, sorry. A whole, every poll that I saw released was done with methodology that uh, I know I'm not comfortable with. And I'm guessing neither one of you would go to the bank with with a client. Right, because they were looking at the best poll looked at past presidential, past even year voters, but didn't have something built in other than self-report to find odd, odd year voters, if I'm not. And mistaken. by the way, this is not the state of Kentucky. Is it's the first time that they've ever had an odd year gubernatorial election? I mean, how how ridiculous is that, that the public pollsters didn't think about trying to build a sample that way? I, I do think that what what shocked me is that one of the polls that was the most I say most accurate, really nobody was accurate. Um, but the, the least inaccurate. One, the, one of the least inaccurate was actually from Vox Populi, which they just do all IVR. They're like the PPP of the right nowadays. Right. Um, and that surprised me because I consistently, I am just such an IVR hater. I just hate oh them my. so much. Um, I just delete. I mean, literally, <laughs> my I my business partner, Patrick, oh. likes IVR because he likes it for all the analytics stuff, but I just hate it. But when it winds up being close, the closest... I guess if it's, you know, the best out of a field of bad things, but that there have been too many times when IVR has actually gotten cl- close-esque in certain races. Yeah. And has were- IVR ever gotten it? Here's the thing, and, and I know that this is, and I'm going to, uh, look, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure IVR people will, if they're listening, will say, well, you're, you've are you been an IVR hater from the beginning. I have, because Homer Simpson can be a pollster. Um, there's an episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> Where he gets a robo, where he buys an automated dialer machine and, and harasses all of Springfield. Are you serious? I'm going to go find this episode. I'm not now. kidding. No, I, I talk about it all the time. He buys it at a garage sale, an automated dialer machine, and starts harassing people with all different sales gimmicks and all this stuff. I mean, basically, any schmo that buys an, a program that can automate automatically make a thousand phone calls in a four hour period can call themselves a pollster now. So I should just back up a second and say the only time I ever won a hotline quiz, Chuck, was when there was a Simpsons question and it was what was Homer Simpson's political slogan when he ran for mayor and it was can't somebody else do it. And that was the only <laughs> the only time I won, <laughs> which is pretty uh, pathetic. Nice. <laughs> so we can, we'll go back and explain. Well, can you just tell our listeners about that? Because not everybody knows about the hotline and it, it's it's huge role. Well, I can, it's funny you bring the bring that up. Look, the hotline. I spent 15 years before I came to NBC um, working at, and in the last five or six years being editor in chief of the hotline. And basically, what the hotline was uh, was uh, the political internet before there was an internet, uh, and it was aggregating before anybody knew what that meant. Yeah. Uh, political news. It was essentially a. a you know, the, the, the insider political tip sheet, it is, you know, before there was a note, there was the hotline. Before there was Politico, there was the hotline. Before, you know, essentially the derivative today is is playbook probably and, and Politico. 
Yeah, and uh, it had all the race. It had you know there were all kinds of races and and a lot of folks who work there now sort of running newsrooms all over the country. And uh, and to date, sort of all of us, maybe not Kristen, but you and me in the hotline, I had to go into the internet room to download it from my yeah, boss right. at the time. Right, you had to download it. You, we we always call it we uploaded. Oh, we what's our upload time? And then that was, you know, we had to send it to modems and people downloaded it. So yeah, there was we had a whole room of all these phone lines in like 1992 that was just a bank a wall of about 250 modems so people could download their hotline it took about oh my god 35 page hotline it took about 10 minutes on a 1200 or 2400 baud modem wow yeah it was a big focal point of a day of around any office was when was the hotline going to come out and had it been you know downloaded and printed and handed it you know handed around it was quite, so, quite a thing you know, obviously, one of the things that we were we were sort of probably we were compiling better than anybody else was all the polling that was out there, uh, and and we you know over time started becoming, I think, pretty decent judges of who was good and who was bad and who who sort of um, which state polls were reliable, which ones weren't. You know, it's interesting we bring up Kentucky. You know, there was a time the Louisville Courier Journal had one of the best polling operations. Uh, of for any local newspaper it was, it was basically set you know them and the des moines register they did it themselves and they did it they had a they had a sophisticated um they they it was their marketing uh their marketing arm the courier journal also did their survey work and it was very good and it was very thorough and it was as it would rival it would rival any polling firm professional polling firm as you guys work in and do it was probably very and, expensive. Yeah. Uh, and that's right. And then as the newspaper industry, you know, obviously shrunk, it was about 10 years ago, they decided, and it was called the Bluegrass Poll. Well, they decided to still call it the Bluegrass Poll, but they outsourced it to Survey USA, which the minute they did it, you know, we stopped at the hotline, we stopped using the numbers because hmm. Survey USA was doing, doing all that, all the RVR stuff. They were sort of the first ones, them and Rasmussen. And, um, I, I tell you, it's, it's funny. I feel like we need an editorial outfit that will grade polls. I, I, I get that you cannot in the same, you know, NBC News used to have the power to say, well, if we're not going to report something, it's not going to get out. Um, that doesn't it, the world we all know doesn't work that way. Bad polls are going to get circulated as fast as good polls are. Sometimes bad polls will get more circulated because the result is more shocking. And people need to realize the more shocking the poll is, the more likely it's wrong. But that's the unfortunately, that's how I view it now. I see a I see a poll with an incredible result, and I think eh, it's probably an outlier. Uh, it's probably BS, probably bad methodology, you know, bad sample, whatever. Um, because I'm so jaded now about it. So but if I were a hotline today, I'd be coming up with a grading system. And essentially say, here are your A polls. And we've done it internally. And I'm not going to say because I don't want to trash individual polls. But we've done that internally now. It's like, okay, here, here's, you know, here, here, are the, here are the really good polls. Here are the average polls. Here are ones that will say are, they're okay for air, but be careful. And then here are ones that are not for air. And if I were an outline, I'd be, you know, doing sort of the same way you'd have a bond rating. AAA bond rating, B bond rating as a pollster, C bond rating, et cetera. Because I think margin margin of error is the if I'd love to quiz reporters to see if they actually understand what margin of error means. <laughs> this because is a pet peeve of mine. Ninety nine percent of reporters don't understand margin of error, and it is the worst 
thing to be added to a poll. I mean, I had an executive say to me, but our, but our margin of error is only 2%. I'm like, oh. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal sample is a better sample. Just trust me. I will take 400 Republican primary voters from Bill McInturf and Fred Yang over 4,000 Republican primary voter sample from SurveyMonkey. I'm sorry. I, you know, one has to do it for a living. One would lose polling contracts if they were wrong, you know. So what do you think the downside is of, of bad polls being circulated, more polls running around? I mean, what, well, what's, what's the, the downside? Down, what's the downside of bad journalism? What's the downside of having, you know, it, it poisons the whole thing. And so what's the downside of look what's happened to, to my industry, right? Distrust in the media. Um, I think we've at NBC done a good job, but because individuals or other news organizations get something wrong or report of then it becomes, oh my God, you know, one one mainstream blog can get something wrong and it's, oh, there goes the media. They're all terrible. And when you have so many, when the pro- proliferation of these IVR polls that are of, we don't, you know, they don't have enough of a track record to even prove themselves are the ones dominating the, 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 the sort of the news cycle when it comes to numbers, then it it's dilutes the good stuff. And so then the good, the ones that are right sort of get lost. What do you think are some things that pollsters get wrong when we are dealing with the media? So, you know, there's plenty of things, as you mentioned, the journalists not understanding margin of error, et cetera. Um, where, what do you think are some other disconnects between pollsters and most journalists that leads to either the public kind of being led astray or bad polls making it in or, or what have you? I Honestly, I think you guys should police your industry better. I think you guys got to start getting more aggressive. I know that in the same way that I don't like, I, you're not going to hear me. I, I'm uncomfortable doing it. And I'm not, I'm sitting here saying it. If you, I am, I am uncomfortable saying news organization X is doing all of us a disservice. Okay. Unfortunately, if I say it, then I become a target and all this stuff. But I think the biggest thing that the professional pollsters need to do is figure out how to police the industry better. And I don't, I don't know what that means. Is it becoming coming up with an agreed upon rating system coming up with or a rating system that people are willing to do being more transparent with what um, creating some level of transparency? I think we need to come up with a new margin of error, meaning my point is a new way to measure um, uh, right now. I mean, I, I think sometimes there's now pollsters that don't understand margin of error yeah. anymore. There's, there, there was an interesting uh, sort of paper that, that APOR put out a couple of years ago trying to push this concept of something called total survey error, where yes. it's not just margin of error, but you're also – Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that's not really well – I mean I confess I don't – if you ask me to calculate total survey error on my survey, I wouldn't – I couldn't do it for you right now. I'd need to dig in further. But I know that that's a concept that's out there that APOR has been pushing as a, as a more thoughtful way to think about margin of error. Yeah, I mean, it, very few say, outlets release things like response rates and you know all the other right. things you don't know. I was trying at Hotline to create to it to do to add two things to every poll write up, and we wouldn't put the poll in unless we got it. Not just margin of error, but also the response rate and the party ID sample, just the party ID split. Yeah, especially that but, you, that's you need that. Oh my gosh, that's and you know <laughs> that's instance, how I judge if a poll is good. Quinnipiac party IDs have been all over the map this year. Um, more so than they have in previous years. 
I think that that needs to be added to the total survey. And look, and here's something else that I tried to do. Oh, in the O2 cycle, because I thought it would be an interesting way to do. I think it's okay to release multiple results. So I think that, you know, we're, too many pollsters are trying so hard to say, well, you know, if it's the two, I think it's like, let's really, this is the 2012 electorate. This would be the result based on a 2014 electorate. This would be the result based on a 2000, um, uh, you know, and if we get a high turnout, this is the result, you know, sort of be more transparent. Like it, it, it's almost like showing how showing that's a version of total survey. If you had this concept of a total survey error rate. Yeah. And so that's that, what we do internally. I mean, that's what you would present you to do. a that's client. Right. Right. You do that for your clients. Why shouldn't we be doing that now for the public? And that's what I think is really interesting about this whole like Monte Carlo simulation idea that, okay, you do a poll and then you can run a ton of simulations that say, okay, in 60 percent of plausible turnout scenarios, you win. And that, that that's almost more valuable than a ballot test, that if you could you know, feed your survey data in and, and simulate out different outcomes based on this survey, 70 percent of plausible turnout scenarios, you win. 30 percent of plausible turnout scenarios, you lose. That's not a way we think about using polling today. But I wonder if that's kind of where we might be headed. I think we should think about that. And the other thing I would do is, is look, I, I have this idea that also, how do we build the perfect survey? Let's say we wanted to create where we felt like we were lowering our error rate for every demographic group possible. So if we've decided the best way to the best way you're going to find the, the highest response rate you'll get from 18 to 35 is online. Fine. Then get your 18 to 35 sample online. If the best way to get 65 plus is landline, then just do landline. If the most representative way to get uh, Hispanics is cell phone um, with bilingual callers and, you know, and if the best way to get, more swing voters is to do some in-person survey work or go to the mall. My point is we're, I think we're all, one of the fights we're having, I think in this community, right. is sort of, all right. You know, it's sort of, it has, it's online or it's live call or it's IVR or it's, or it's in person, which obviously overseas sometimes in person is still the best way. Um, Or it may be text message, whatever it is. Do we, is there a way to build a multi-platform response survey? Does that make sense? I'm yeah. I'm sort of. And why haven't we tried that? I know it's expensive, but should we be trying that? Well, I guess you know another question is. I mean, obviously, as you as you note, that too many polls and too many bad polls hurt the industry, hurt people's perception of the industry. Do you think it hurts? And what do you think the effect is on campaigns and on candidates and on the political process? Well, obviously, this year it's had a warped. It's had a it's had a horrible impact on the process. I mean, I mean, it was all when when the decision was made by Fox to use national polls to decide who was going to be in the Republican primary in Republican primary debate. And then every other network followed suit. Um, Then the most unreliable part of any political polling that's conducted in any cycle, which is the horse race for presidential primaries on a national poll, (laughs) becomes the primary way. To determine who gets to be in and out of debates, now we have warped the process, and now we're 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 having an influence on the process with with the industry's 
worst way to determine who's winning the presidential primary. Yep. Like, what is the worst way to figure that out? National primary polls. Right? Anybody who's been involved in presidential politics will tell you that. And we just made it the most important aspect to determining who gets to be center stage to talk about why they're being want to be president. Mm-hmm. That that is when we have to all say to ourselves, "Whoa, what have we just done?" Um, I don't think the I I understand why. I mean, it was the folks at Fox started this. CNN went right with it. CNBC. I mean, you know, this is all the media did this. I understand in the moment why Fox decided they had to come up with something in their mindset mm-hmm. to try to cut because the field was so large. Um, but I think we, we, we created a monster here. So understanding that the, the national primary polls, the horse race polls, probably the, the worst piece of, of any of these polls. I mean, NBC Wall Street Journal does do a ton of polling and a, a ton of, you know, really well-regarded polling. What do you think then is the most interesting question people can be looking at to get a sense of what the heck is actually going on in this primary race out of a national poll? Are there other well, questions that, that that provide people with better insight into what the heck is going on? Well, look, we, we're trying it. I mean, we tried this new question and we're sticking with it. And we think we've we think this is going to be determinative, which is could you could you see yourself support question? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been doing that first before we do our ballot test, by the way. We've been specifically doing it and, and doing that first before we get the ballot. This was a brainchild of, of Peter and, and, and Bill. It was, it was basically Peter was convinced you cannot ask a horse race ballot of more than 10 people. He just thinks you get response fatigue. And, and he just was he was determining basically threw it at Fred and Bill. Fred and Fred Yang and, and Bill are the, the two primaries said, let's come up with something else. And we weren't going to do any prime. We were going to use this and create, show our primary sample this way. But it's been pretty determined. It showed what it shows you. It shows you who has the most room to grow, mm-hmm. who doesn't. Early on, we saw how Chris Christie was unnominatable, right, uh, in the Republican primary. He started out with like a over 50 percent could not support. Lindsey Graham started out with an over 50. So very quickly, it's not, you know, there's. Because in a horse race poll, there's two different types of two percent presidential results, right? There's the two percent because the can't nobody's ever heard of the candidate, and then there's the two percent because there's only two percent that want them, <laughs> right? But they have high name ID. Well, that's where a Lindsey Graham and Chris Christie actually you found out they had higher name ID than you realize, but they were still only getting those under five percent single digits, and so. I have this other question on the could support scale. Well, that te- that that gives you, oh, well, there it is. You know, they've already been eliminated. And so if you look on our could support, there are five candidates that have 50 percent or more. And there are um, the rest aren't over 50 percent. Jeb Bush, by the way, is at 49. <laughs> He's right in the cusp. Oh, Jeb. More importantly, we've used that question to then divide the Republic, divided the Republican Party into sort of four subgroups, value voters, the libertarian leaners, the tea partiers, and the um, sort of the moderates, the Chamber of Commerce wing. And what's fascinating there is you take the same could support number, and we've done it with merged data, and then you find out, well, who's over 50% in all four categories? And we found out only two candidates were over 50% in all four categories, Marco Rubio and Ben Carson. 
I would, so my point is, I think I was able to tell you more based on could support or could not support about the horse race than the horse race itself. Yeah, I think that's, so, it's a pretty, I, I like that, that that as a way of taking a field as crazy as the Republican field is this time around with so many people in it. And trying well, to sift through the chaos. Well, it's, it means the same thing if you have like most important issue and you look at the top versus just a whole bunch of middle versus rating each individual issue by itself. I mean, having those individual ratings make it a just lot because more I richer. say economy doesn't mean I don't care about education right. stuff like that. Here's what here's where it gets at. It gets at intensity of either positive or negative, right? Or potential intensity of positive or negative. Look at the what's the, what's the best example of this where I think that where where You've got to pull the you've got to pull the issue right if you understand intensity, and that is the gun issue. So in some ways, you always want to come up with a way that that isn't just giving you the straight issue. So yes, there's ninety percent in favor of background checks. Okay, what does that mean, and and who really cares about this issue? So to me, doing what we did with could support, could not support, we're trying to get at the intensity of your support on an individual, and it's the same way that I think you got to find out on. on on issues. Well, what's the intensity of your interest level or what's the intensity of your support level? So anything now in, in, in polls that can help, help explain that certainly is beneficial to me as a reporter. It also seems more helpful than your just straight fave unfave question. You know, I can envision a scenario where a week from now we're looking at polls where you still have a huge number of Republican voters saying they're favorable to Ben Carson. But not going to vote But his would support numbers dropping because of the Mm -hmm. way that he's handled all of this foreign affairs stuff that people still say, oh, he's a nice guy. Right. We'll start seeing a split in that, I bet. I bet you're right. And and so that's why that, I think, is is an interesting addition to the standard – name ID, fave, unfave, and ballot test question, because it gets at more of what people's actual voting behavior might really look like in a completely crazy packed field. So we're going to let you go, Chuck. We are so thankful that you joined us, and I know our listeners are going to be really excited to hear your... I, I, you, you know, it's like um, my PR folks get upset at me that I get so animated about... <laughs> I want to say I like good polling. I want to save it. You guys want to save it. We gotta, um, we gotta figure out how to crack this code to police the community. Chuck, you know? I'll, I'll recommend a Twitter account for you to follow. It's at the poll police one. Um, it's it's an anonymous account. I've the, I've been in touch with this person via Twitter. They're based in the UK, but that's all I know about them. But they go through and they critique when people misrepresent poll findings in headlines and things, I think you would probably find it pretty amusing. So there's already... Interesting. So what is it called? At Poll Police One, huh? At the Poll Police One. (laughs) What happened to the original Poll Police? I don't know. Did somebody already have that Twitter handle? I guess, I guess. What about the Poll Police? This can be be like a spin-off podcast (laughs) where Margie and I just rant about bad polling. You you just go, it's like you're interviewing Anonymous. (laughs) Exactly. When you get this person on the show, they'll have the uh, voice uh, voice. Right. We'll have people come on and anonymously, com- you know, we'll bash their competitors. We'll find out it's Neil Newhouse. Or David. <laughs> he was our guest last week, so probably not. <laughs> um, well, thanks again, Chuck. We really appreciate it. Wow. This is great. Thanks, guys. Gals. Thanks. Have Bye. a good one. Take care. Bye. And so that was Chuck Todd from Meet the Press and Meet the Press Daily. That was great. He really got into it very quickly. I'm glad we talked about 
that Colorado poll. I know. Before we got there, it seems that Chuck has seen it as well. Oops. Okay. <laughs> Skype's making all kinds of weird noises at us. Okay. So now we should go back to Republican. Yeah, we'll do Republicans real fast. Okay. So it was I, – I was glad to hear from him talking about the, the new ways to gauge the horse race because I, I'm with him that I still think this question of who are you going to vote for is so fluid at this point. It's going to change. Who You know, asking people hypothetically who would you vote for when they're not actually going to commit that act for three months right. is, is hard. Whereas somebody knows right now, would I vote for Ben Carson? Maybe I would. Maybe I wouldn't. Well, and then, I mean, the Iowa poll from CNN from a week or so ago, I think we talked about on the show last week, only about a quarter or so of Republicans or a third, something around that. It was definitely far fewer than half said that they are committed to their candidate. You have more Democrats saying they're committed. And this is in Iowa. So if that's the case, then what? why are we you know, reading so much into the difference between someone at 8 percent or 7 percent or 6 percent when most people have not made up their mind? And with that, now we're going to talk to you about the polling averages of the national protest question. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> the, quest, the, the question we just told you: don't listen to this question; it's terrible. Uh, so, but it's volatile. I mean, that's you know, that's yeah. The well, the, the the one thing that's good about poll averages over a longer period of time, not just hey, we're going to take the last four polls and pick who goes on the stage, but looking over time, is that even if these polls are terrible, you are still if you're trending the same terrible poll over time, you can at least build trend lines, right? I right. mean, it's that's still highly imperfect. But if you're looking at the same chunk of polls moving across time, you can see interesting and meaningful things. And here, when we look at these trend lines, Donald Trump back, ticking back up. Um, and in, we have not had a show since Donald Trump's like weirdo epic rant in Iowa with the belt buckle rant, I think, as it's being known. Did you see that vine? I didn't see it. Oh, Margie. Actually, don't. I don't know. I he, read some uh, coverage, but I'm afraid I did not. It was weird. He he talks I, about how Ben Carson is pathological like a child molester. I heard that part. It got weird. Um, but, you know, every time Donald Trump really takes a hatchet to one of his opponents, it's bad news for that opponent. Jeb Bush's campaign numbers being sort of the – prime example of that. Well, Ben Carson now seems to be the next victim. Um, or Bobby Jindal. Bobby Jindal's now out of the race. Remember, Trump was like, I don't, oh, I don't yeah. talk Rick, to people. I think Rick Perry was the, the OG on this front. He was the original <laughs> Republican fighting Donald Trump, and he was right, the first right. one gone. That's like right. Jim Gilmore is still in it's the like race. It's like a horror or... movie. <laughs> um, so Donald Trump ticking back up slightly. Uh, Ben Carson, the last few polls showing that he has had a, a rougher week, even though he still maintains very strong favorables, um, that maybe people are, are beginning to consider him less less exciting as a presidential candidate. Well, and they're probably seen, responding to a lot of the stories about his bio, which are, you know, shocking individually, but the totality of them, I think, is a real It's a pattern. weird election when we're at a place where you have a candidate who is vocally and aggressively arguing that they did, in fact, stab a man. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, and that's not even the only only one. I mean, there's oh, like four there's or five the West other Point things. And, yeah, so the Ben West Carson's Point had a rough week, and it's it's the, um, foreign advisor story that was out yesterday. Oh, that New York was yes, Times. that was bad. 
Well, this is all starting to show up in the poll. That foreign advisor one has not shown up in the polls yet. But no. thus far, the, the trend line on Ben Carson is ticking down. He still remains in the um, uh, real clear or pardon me, HuffPost pollster average at 18.5 percent. So nothing to shake a stick at, but still um, the, the trend line's pointing in a particularly bad direction for him. Meanwhile, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, um, they seem to be emerging as the establishment two. I can't believe I'm calling Ted Cruz an establishment candidate. But right. that this is the election we're in. Um, and, you know, Jeb Bush's numbers still still staying middling. Um, Carly Fiorina's bump has faded that, that really, I mean, the, the big headline here is, is the Ben Carson decline going to continue? Is Donald Trump finally sticking it to him? And right. is Trump ever going to fade? We don't know. Stay tuned. Stay, Next week. Stay tuned. I, I will say we don't have this in our notes, so I'm going to be careful about uh, quoting exact numbers. But I believe Reuters did a poll in New Hampshire where they said, which candidate do you think would be best to handle, I think, either foreign affairs or terrorism or the situation with ISIS? And Donald Trump was number one at 33 percent. Yeah. So just chew on that, listeners. Chew on that one. OK. Well, and we had a great talk with Chuck Todd about methodology. And we have a couple more methodological notes um, that come from Pew. And the great folks of Pew have been sending up, making sure we see these reports and we'll put them as always in our show notes. And they have two new reports that are, are together very useful. The first is about reaching Latinos and all the different things that improve one's ability to reach Latinos, um, which – and some of them are things that it, for folks who are already research professionals, you probably already know, which is you want to make sure your survey is translated, that you know, translation is not just you – know, you know, just hit a button and translate different communities and folks from different countries of origin uh, speak Spanish in different ways and the translation can be different depending what audiences you're talking to, that all Latinos are not simply – just a group of Latinos that folks who are foreign-born or younger or were born here, um, different levels of assimilation, all those things make a difference into how easy or hard they are to reach by traditional survey methods, and they may have differences in how they respond to your survey uh, itself, to your instrument. Um, but they also had some interesting stuff here, too, about reaching uh, Latinos by cell phone, which you heard Chuck talk about. It's crucial to have a high uh, – to use a cell phone methodology to reach Latinos. Um, and the other thing that I thought was a good note from them, it, from Pew, is that because Latinos are disproportionately likely to live in multi-generational households, you should take that into account when you ask your questions. So if you have something like, can I talk to the person who in your household who had a birthday most recently? Or how many people in your household do X, Y, and Z? You may get different kinds of responses among Latinos because there are more likely to be more people living in the house relative to mm-hmm. other folks. Not that everybody in a Latina household has a grandparent and a child and everyone in between, but that they're more likely to have a different kind of combination. Yeah, this, this question is one that's really interesting and important for anybody who's doing polling in the U.S. because the demographic trend lines are so clear and so stark and show that such a large proportion of our population is currently made up of of Hispanics and then that number is only going to be growing um, the adult population of the U.S. in in coming decades. And I I really – you know, this is sort of peeling back the the curtain on our industry. You know, I struggle with this question of, um, you know, when I do a national survey – you know, you you want to make sure that you're representing everybody, um, but not every client is going to have the budget to do. Right, we're going to do the bilingual interviewers. We're going to get the questionnaire translated, and certainly, I can think of very few clients that would have the kind of budget to do multiple different translations and different variations. Right. And so, what this is hard because you know we. 
as we just said, we love good polling. We want polling to be good. You want to give your client, but there, you know, this is one of those trade-offs that I still don't know, and I think we're still trying to figure out as an industry. You know, what is what is the trade-off? Obviously, if I'm doing a statewide poll in New Mexico, then it's absolutely worthwhile and necessary right. um, to be doing these sorts of things to get the to get accurate data. Um, but where does that stop? If you're doing a statewide survey in Ohio. Then do you need to get that questionnaire translated? If you don't, you are actually missing people. But it's that sort of cost-benefit uh, analysis that, that I right. think as an industry we're still figuring out what's what's the right trade-off and in what situations. Yeah, and I – you know, I've uh, struggled with this question when I've worked with folks who are running in cities or in primaries that have a heavy Latino population where even if it's not overwhelming – size Latino population. You want to make sure nonetheless that you're being inclusive because that little bit of difference can make or break how reliable your poll is. And also, you don't want folks in the Latino community to feel that they can't participate in your survey. If you are running and you are an incumbent in an area, even if you're not disclosing that the poll is for that person, you still want to make sure you're still talking about the city. You're still talking about your own candidacy. You want to be a little bit aware about dialing into a population and, and not giving them a, a, an equal option to participate. And so one of the other things that the Pew data looked at, which is the difference, and this makes a lot of sense, the difference between having a fully bilingual team of interviewers versus rescheduling an interview with a bilingual interviewer down the road, which is obviously going to make a huge difference in your response rate. That if you have everybody who's interviewing equally comfortable in doing the interview in Spanish and English, then you can just flip, you know, depending on what the respondent wants. But if you say, okay, well, I'm going to have someone call you back, then you you may have lost them. And then, you know, that's a little bit harder. So for our listeners who are really interested in this methodological nitty gritty, highly recommend checking it out. And we will, of course, continue bringing you every time Pew puts out one of these reports. I mean, it's really important for the industry. And it's great that there is an entity like Pew that's doing this hard, expensive work and sort of helping inform other pollsters of, of what best practices can and should look like. Yeah. And they actually have another one. We're not going to get into too much detail, but they have another one, too, about cell phone methodologies and different cell phone sample products. And they can't really, they haven't yet been able to test them to see what the cost benefit is methodologically. But there are some ways to make sure you're getting uh, the right percentage of prepaid cell phone numbers as opposed to just simply a cell phone that's, you know, that where the, someone gets a bill where it's a little bit different. And then uh, are you better able to geotarget cell phones now by uh, buying? a sample product where you have the full billing address appended. So you don't have to use the area code, which as folks know, is portable. So you can, you know, like my cell phone is 202. Even though I live in Maryland, it's the D.C. Uh, area code. and it will What be... up 407? Exactly. Orlando. <laughs> exactly. So, oh, you know, if you use I've area code, since I was 18 years you old. would not get us, you would not, we would not be the right people in your sample frame if you were trying to get D.C. or Florida residents. But if you have where the bill is being mailed, the billing address, then you, hopefully you would get it right. So anyway, Pew has that up too. Uh, so the, our next poll that we're going to talk about is a study um, done by Gallup um, asking about uh, interest in computers uh, and how students, parents, and teachers view interest in computers breaking down by the gender of the students. Now, a funny – or I, I don't know if it's funny. Actually, this is more depressing. I, I, I retract funny and I, I will substitute depressing. Um, have you ever heard of something called the Bechtel test? It's, yes. So the Bechtel test for our listeners is does a movie include two women – who have a conversation with each other and it's not about men. Right. 
and that it's shocking the number of movies that come out of Hollywood where that doesn't occur. Yes. That two women don't have a conversation not about about something besides men. So I, I saw yesterday on, on Twitter it proposed that there needs to be a tech panel Bechtel test. Does a panel at a tech conference have more than one woman on it and it is not a women in tech panel? Oh, God. <laughs> I mean – it, 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 we don't even need to make it just tech. It could just almost, it could almost be anything. That's true. Women in politics. Yeah. Which I mean, hey, we've done some women in politics things recently, as you heard on our most recent uh, our show. Was that a week or two ago yes. when we went to Georgetown? Yes. I don't mind doing a good women in politics thing. It's an important topic, but sometimes, sometimes yes. That's yeah. the only panel that you'll see women on that's at an right. event. And that's it's like, right. Although I am speaking tomorrow. Well, tomorrow, Chris and I are both speaking at the University of Virginia. It's like American democracy. I've never met Larry Sabato before. So I haven't I'm either. super excited. I haven't either. And so I'm moderating the morning. <laughs> so and are weird. you moderating? You're moderating the afternoon. or I think I'm just on the afternoon panel. So I'm moderating the morning one. And there are two other women in addition to me. And it's not a women's panel. So that is good. Victory, including victory. Hillary Rosen and my style icon, <laughs> Maria Cardona. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so you, it's free and open to the public. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday night or very early Thursday morning or whenever we push this out, you can go and you can look it up online and you can go if you're in D.C. Um, so this is pretty – but anyway, all kidding aside, these numbers are pretty sad. So, yeah. so they, they asked students, parents and teachers and they said, which do you think – is or who do you think is more likely to be successful in learning computer science? When they asked students, 30 percent said girls – 44% said boys and 18% said both equally. So I'm a little I'm pretty bummed that both equally only got 18%. Right. I mean, there is a 30% who said girls learn better. But here it is though, among teachers, that's what's really depressing. You know, yeah. 19% of teachers say girls, 36% say boys, 40% say both equally. I mean, that's admitting some, I mean, I guess it's not admitting a bias, but how can you not really then do something differently? Either way, you know, either giving over attention to the girls or, you know, just assuming that yeah. the boys are going to have it easier so you kind of track them, which is probably what happens a lot more often than not. And, and I find I find these numbers uh, upsetting, you know, because, and you have, you know, more girls, uh, more boys and girls saying, that they feel confident that they're going to study computers. And, you know, anyway, our macro assignment, we had a very easy micro assignment. Our macro assignment is to teach a girl <laughs> to, to code and to get into computers because these numbers make us sad. Um, I was pretty excited. So I, I've talked on the show before about how I took that CS50 class yes. last fall. So now apparently not only is Harvard CS50 class the number one class for undergrads at Harvard, it's now also the number one class for undergrads at Yale. It's taught at Harvard, ah. and they just like li like live stream it in at wow. Yale and have TAs on the ground. And so now a Harvard class is the most enrolled class at Yale. Oh, that must just cause as someone all who kinds did not of... attend either of those institutions, I don't feel deeply about this rivalry. But I'm I... sure it just flames, you know, fans of flames of oh, whatever yes. that is. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, we did talk about a study for a couple weeks ago about how. More women were be, were interested in visiting and studying in a computer lab if there were if there was neutral decoration. So if people weren't wearing an "I love to code" or "Star Wars" T-shirt and they didn't have like kind of you know techie 
techie kind of chic stuff on the walls, but instead had neutral art posters and a coffee maker, which was odd, and plants um, that that made women more likely. So, I mean, it's simple. I mean, little, little things, right? Little things, though, brief digression. I've been very pleased at the level of mainstream interest in this Star Wars movie. Daisy Ridley, who's playing the female lead, she's on the cover of Elle this month, and inside she's wearing a Giambattista Valli couture ball gown and a vintage Star Wars t-shirt, and it just made me very happy. And they've got one of the ads for the new Star Wars video game. It has Anna Kendrick in it, and she's not dressed like, you know, in like some tight sci-fi hot chick outfit. Like, she's in like an Obi-Wan Kenobi robe. Um, So I, I feel like nerddom is now also becoming more gender neutral. Well, that's good. That's good. Hopefully. Um, But here's something that's not as good news, um, and that is financial literacy. Gallup also did a study worldwide looking at financial literacy, and they saw um, that there is – not surprisingly, a gender gap um, of about five points where men were five percentage points more likely to uh, be financially literate on a variety of dimensions than women. But that gap is wider in the United States. So it's five points worldwide. It's 10 points in the U.S. And the U.S. doesn't even make make it into the top 10 financially literate countries Mm. in the world. We're number 14. So – that's tough. And so the, the questions were or the areas were um, risk diversification, inflation, numeracy, and compound interest. So those were the different areas. You can go to Gallup. I'm sure they have the exact questions. Speaking of finances, uh, some interesting polling out about people who use Airbnb. So I have actually never used Airbnb. I have friends that work for Airbnb and have spoken very highly of it, but I've never actually used it. But I always think of Airbnb as sort of a cheaper alternative to where you might stay. If, like you're going to San Francisco and the hotels are crazy expensive. You right. Airbnb a place. Um, they found that in a four thousand person sample, uh, per, pardon me, four thousand person survey, that sixty six percent of respondents um, said that they earned seventy five thousand dollars or more a year. So this is not like a sort of middle class income kind of traveler. This is most of them are kind of upscale upscale people, but they're using a service that is cheaper. Right. Than going to a hotel. Well, everyone wants to save money. But it is a good reminder when you think about like, oh, well, everyone I know does X, Y, and Z. Like just make sure, you know, it's not always representative of the full population. Yes. Most of us, we do not have a friend group that is statistically representative of the full United States. Yes. It doesn't make us bad people. (laughs) No, that's true. It doesn't make you bad people. But it may make you a bad estimator. (laughs) The the other fun uh, sort of – trend in terms of travel. Um, There was another study done by Harris on behalf of Switchfly Inc. I don't know what Switchfly Inc. is. I don't either. Um, Well, they're interested in studying where uh, millennials are interested in traveling, specifically Cuba. So Americans are apparently still not permitted to visit Cuba for tourism purposes. Um, I I don't know quite what the regulations on all of this are, how one might go about visiting Cuba. But apparently 49 percent of millennial men 43% of millennial women. It's a lot easier. It's definitely, I don't know exactly what the new rules are, but it's definitely a lot. It's not, you can't just sort of say, walk out the door and say, I'm going to Cuba, but you don't have to, it's just. It's not banned. It's not banned and the the rules have now been. Um, So they found that that 37% of Americans said that they would be interested in Cuba. So this is not the, are you planning to visit?
at Cuba. No. This is not the ballot test. And this is not are you favorable toward Cuba? This is the would you consider <laughs> voting for question of right. travel. Would you right. consider traveling to Cuba? Um, and there are 37 percent of Americans say they are interested in doing so. Much higher among millennials. Um, for baby boomer men, there's actually not a big gender gap among millennials. Um, but for baby boomers, baby boomer men, 46 percent really want to go to Cuba. Only 28 percent of baby boomer women. I wonder if it has to do with Cuban cigars. Mm. I bet you that's what it is. Maybe. I mean, uh, this is one of those For places. wild speculation. Maybe. That, that, that's a good point. I had thought about that. I mean, it, uh, this is one of those rare cases where Margie is more like a millennial than like a Gen Xer or a boomer um, because uh, definitely Cuba's on our list. I mean, for sure, that's, you know, that's in the short list of trips down the road. Yep. Um, and they, they, they say that part of the reason may be, you know, how, like how easy it is to travel or book it and, you know, is, do you, would you go through your regular travel channels like a travel agent? Um, about a third of folks say, well, maybe I want to wait two to five years before the kinks were worked out in terms of traveling. But, you know, the thought, I think, for those who want to travel there is you want to go early before it gets completely overrun with the, oh, my God, we, we get to go to Cuba set. Which will be me. <laughs> Which will definitely be me. So, Margie, what did we learn this week? The polling on terrorism and on Syrian refugees seems to be moving quickly, even if it may fall along familiar fault lines. No debates for a while. Doesn't mean there's any shortage of polls showing both volatility and some consensus building. Meet the Chuck. We have a great conversation with Chuck Todd and learn um, how he views the industry and, uh, you know, I think it's some important considerations for all of us. Uh, follow Pew for their in-depth methodological reports and make sure you're buying the right sample and hiring the right interviewers. Macro assignment, teach a girl the code and how to invest. Airbnb, thrifty travel for the upper income sets and – Maybe I'm still young at heart after all since I desperately want to go to You Cuba. get a millennial point this week, Margie. That's right. Yay. Way to go. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at, at Margie O'Meara, at Kay Soltis Anderson, and at The Pollsters. You can find us at thepolsters.com or on Facebook where throughout the week we'll post links to polls we find that are interesting. Don't forget to write a review. You can find us on iTunes or on Stitcher. Thank you again to everybody who wrote reviews on Stitcher. We really appreciate it. 